This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, Episode 129, What If the Real Scam is Wall Street? Traditional financial planning is no longer working. And in the new normal economy, your host, certified financial planner Mark Willis, invites you to join us as we engage the new and improved steps for establishing financial sanity. Be curious, be stable, be sane. This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future. We're doing this mini-series on whether or not bank on yourself is a scam, but I thought we'd kind of turn the tables a little bit today on our final episode in this series. Let's turn the tables and ask, what if the real scam is Wall Street, after all? You know, I've heard it said that when you point a finger at somebody, you've got three more fingers pointing right back at you. So what if Wall Street and their financial analysts, their investment advisors, all the money gurus that deride and make fun of or call a scam uh, bank on yourself, maybe we should ask them, what does Wall Street have to say about its own record? What does Wall Street say? Does Does Wall Street possibly fit the perfect definition of a scam? So in an article titled, Four Reasons Whole Life Insurance is Not Worth It, Holly Johnson, writing in The Simple Dollar, says, she says it with confidence. She says, quote, instead of pouring money into a whole life insurance policy and hoping it pays off, I would much rather keep more of my money in my own hands. That way, I can continue saving cash, maxing out our retirement accounts, and investing in real estate, end quote. It's one of these sentences that I came across pretty regularly on the, in, on the internet in my research to discover for myself and for you all if bank on yourself was truly a scam. There are so many misstatements and incorrect facts in her comments um, that you know just drove me crazy reading the article, to be honest. But it's not just her. I mean, she was taught erroneous information about how whole life insurance works. Perhaps even sadder is the fact that she's got this incredible confidence about that, which doesn't seem to come at great expense. And perhaps there's a valuable lesson here. So for years, critics have confused people about the essential nature of whole life insurance. She's not alone. Investors have paid a terrible price for this incorrect advice uh, with excessive risk from Wall Street, subpar investment returns compared to what the strong participating whole life insurance policy would have given that person. So especially damaging is the advice from trusted consumer advocacy groups like Consumer Reports. A 2015 Consumer Reports article titled, quote, Is Whole Life Insurance Right for You? advises its readers, quote, if you're wealthy, you can probably gamble on whole life. If you're struggling, go with term, end quote. The writer of that article, a Simple Dollar article, also cites the Consumer Reports in her article as an authoritative source of information about whole life insurance. But as I say in previous episodes and podcasts, that such information is not serious, cannot be serious, nor is it helpful for the vast majority of individuals in this country seeking financial security and independence. That financial advisors are going to remain ignorant and advertise it, whether innocently or otherwise, about whole life insurance and how it really works, I believe is a travesty. It's, it's really a big problem for the average American. So let's take a little trip down memory lane and let's re- look at the real results. You know, if, I don't know if you guys remember the, 
the article that was published in the New York Sun back in 1897. There's that famous, um, yes, Santa Claus is real article. You know, Virginia, your little friends are wrong, the article says. When little eight-year-old Virginia uh, writes to the New York Sun about Santa Claus, I think it's kind of relevant here. Uh, The article writes, Virginia, your little friends are wrong. They have been affected by the skepticism of a skeptical age. They do not believe except what they see. They think that nothing can be which is not comprehensible by their little minds. In unequivocal language, yes, whole life insurance is worth it. That their skeptical friends and advisors, financial advisors, their pundits, their bloggers are wrong, and that they can trade in their fears, doubts, and uncertainties with safety, protection, and certainty. Indeed, the essential nature and unsaid truth of whole life insurance is so obvious, it's straightforward, it's often missed by those who are looking for complex financial solutions and those willing to sell complex financial plans to their clients. So there is an unsaid truth about whole life insurance. So sorry, Consumer Reports, whole life insurance is the exact opposite of a gamble. It's the complete opposite of gambling. Life insurance companies sell certainty. Prospective policyholders come to insurance companies with an uncertain financial future. They trade that uncertain future for a known premium and a guaranteed future outcome. Life insurance companies are willing to make 30 and 50 and even 100 plus year promises. So, you know, for my little girl who's got a little policy, she could be on their books, on a contract on their books for a a century if she lives that long. Uh, And that's what they do all day long. They do it in exchange for your premiums. No other financial institution makes such long dated promises because no other financial institution is in a position to do that. This is why whole life insurance is potentially the single most valuable long-term financial product available. I say all those words with intentionality there. Among the various financial products available where you can get some sort of guarantee to the investor, none offers a lifetime guarantee of savings. Not even a CD or a money market gives you a lifetime guarantee. A lifetime guarantee of a death benefit too, which is higher than the savings amount at a reasonable expectation of dividends each year if the company's profitable. No other financial instrument does that except participating whole life insurance. This is really because it's built on the same advanced actuarial science or mathematics that uh, life insurance has used for generations. The guaranteed cash value, the guaranteed death benefit, the guaranteed payments of premium into the policy ensure that you never have to guess about your financial future. Whole life insurance's big and not-so-secret promise is that they make the uncertain certain. Guys, it protects individuals against financial loss, and it simultaneously provides financial security for your entire lifetime. It's really unfortunate that this simple fact is often unsaid or unacknowledged by most online bloggers, article writers, podcast hosts, whatever. Uh, Not this podcast, right? Um, We don't want to be average. We want to be awesome on this podcast. So contrast their description of whole life insurance with the empty promises of Wall Street. Maybe even more unfortunate, and maybe it's ironic really, is the fact that in place of whole life insurance, many bloggers and publications prefer that you invest in the stock market instead. For years, investors were promised 12% average returns in the stock market. In hindsight, 
they earned far less. In many cases, it was less than 4% after taxes, according to Dalbar in the Quantitative Analysis of Investor Behavior Study of 2018. In some cases, it's less than that. In fact, in 2017, Fidelity analyzed 22,400 retirement plans, monitoring the performance of 15 million investors. It's one of the biggest and largest known databases of its kind. At the end of 2017, Fidelity reported the 10-year median average return for investors was just 5.8% before taxes, before taxes. Okay, keep that number in mind. These investors were committed to remaining invested long-term, but only a small percentage of these investors had taken hardship withdrawals. Okay, so this is the buy and hold strategy, the big group of buy and holds in this country. So did the average advice of, quote, buy and hold work despite their loyalty to the market? These investors were rewarded with risk and lost capital. Even so, they remained faithful. They stuck it out. They didn't open up their 401k statements when the markets were crashing. Even so, they remained faithful. This speaks to the idea of those committed to the stick with it program, the buy and hold program. And if you want to learn more about whether or not buy and hold really works, uh, listen to episode 51. Is it really worth 5.8% pre-tax to go through all those sleepless nights? Mutual fund companies are able to advertise very juicy returns, oftentimes stating their funds can rake in double-digit returns simply by investing in their mutual fund. And it's true, the funds themselves can make double-digit returns. But, and the key word there is but, investors in those funds are earning less, much less than the fund itself is advertising. This was highlighted by the latest Dalbar study, which found that average equity mutual fund investors earned only 3.8% annually over the last 20 years. Investors who placed their money in more diversified mutual funds, where their money was spread out across stocks, bonds, you know, multiple asset classes, they were even worse than 3.8. They were more at 1.8% over the last 20 years. 1.8%? 1.8%? That's the average portfolio of a blended, diversified basket of stocks and bonds and mutual funds? If you're in target date funds in your 401k, and that's the automatic, by the way, so if you didn't exclusively and specifically choose not to have target date funds, your employer puts you in that, you know, whether you asked for it or not, in your 401k, IRA, and so forth. If you're in a target date fund, that 1.8% is your performance over the last 20 years, unless you can prove otherwise. And I would be very surprised if you could. Uh, so far, it's not been the case. That is the power of diversification. That is the power of Wall Street, 1.8%. That's the, the power of Wall Street before our eyes. Which one is the scam? Bank on yourself or the advertising of Wall Street? Now, it's worse than just false advertising, right? It has dramatic ramifications for real-life people. The promise of these high rates of return can cause investors to kick back a little bit, save less. If investors are expecting they're getting their 12% in their investments, then they don't need to save as much in their own mind, right? If you were only earning 4%, for example, you know, but planning on a 12% or 8% uh, rate of return and then receiving 3 or 4% returns, it's going to destroy the investor's financial plan. It's going to make it impossible to retire with any sort of financial security. And despite the widespread, widespread belief by investors 
that they're going to be in a lower bracket when they retire. The Center for Retirement Research at Boston College actually did a study on this, and they found that taxes on income drawn from retirement accounts will eat up 25 to 33 percent of a typical investor's retirement savings. This is assuming that income taxes don't go up from today's low, relatively low rates. So, you have to, yeah, you have to keep in mind that that return of 3 4%, whatever you're actually getting in the markets, is going to be reduced when Uncle Sam takes his piece. Now, there's another piece to this, too. There's something, there's a distinction I'll make here. I'm going to use a vocabulary word, risk tolerance versus risk capacity. I feel like part of the problem with investors today isn't really financial at all. You know, anybody with a financial calculator can figure out what your magic number should be. It's not so much a financial problem. It's a more of, of an emotional problem. It's the faulty notion that risk tolerance matters. Risk tolerance matters. Now, the words risk tolerance, if you're not in the financial world, you might not know kind of what that is. It's, it's sort of how an investor feels about risk. And yet, feelings don't always jive with the hard facts, right? One of the bedrock tools of any financial planner is something called the risk tolerance questionnaire. We were told to use it in our financial planning consultations with our clients when I was going through training, and it's still seen as the gold standard for helping build our clients a portfolio that meets their risk tolerance. So in one of these questionnaires, essentially investors are asked a series of questions to kind of determine their own risk tolerance used through subjective questionnaires. Basically, they sit you down and they ask you questions like, hey, how would you feel if you experienced a 40% decline in your portfolio value? And whatever the answer is uh, would kind of help the investment advisor pick and choose stocks and bonds according to your risk. Now, the problem is usually that risk tolerance questionnaire is handed to the client or investor while he's sipping a latte in a plush office in a leather chair in a comfortable room with relaxing music. What they answer on that form might be different than what they experience in the moment of a market crash, um, and uh, they don't have that latte to help them feel better. So it really raises for me an obvious question. Do, do these questionnaires really reflect reality? A risky investment might not feel risky to the investor when they're plunking some money into it, but it is risky nonetheless. So this is a phenomenon that's really um, plagued investors for decades. What if we change out risk tolerance questionnaires with a risk capacity score? This would be the amount of risk an investor must take to meet his or her investment goals. In other words, um, the amount of risk an investor can afford to take to meet their investment goals and not fail to retire. When we reframe the conversation away from risk tolerance to risk capacity, I think we have an objective calculation. We can actually figure out how much money investors can risk to meet their goals. So meaning, if your guaranteed future value of your savings is not enough to pay all of your retirement or expected future expenses, then you really cannot afford to take any risk. Plain and simple on a mathematical basis. Investors can reasonably take risks when they have guaranteed savings sufficient to cover necessary future expenses. Of course, implied in this is that investors need insurance products 
for financial security and independence. This is, a, this is really kind of the underlying concept of the episode here today. The problem is we're using the wrong financial products for the wrong reasons. We're using the wrong financial products for the wrong reasons. See, we're using Wall Street as our savior and the be-all, end-all of preparing for our retirement. And too many people uh, were using life insurance only for the death benefit. Those are two products for using, uh, using the two products maybe for at least incomplete reasons. What if you put whole life insurance front and center? Wouldn't that fundamentally change the financial planning industry? Wouldn't that fundamentally change, more importantly, your own financial future and restore trust to your financial picture and your goals? So to achieve true financial security, you'd need to put a high premium participating whole life policy, what we call bank on yourself, at the front and center of your financial plan. Super high contributions is what as high as you can make them comfortably as a challenge to yourself would earn high guaranteed cash accumulation. It would allow you to pass on risk from you to the life insurance company. Each dollar of guaranteed contributions or premiums and the resulting guaranteed cash value would be yours. It would free up that money and it would free up riskable money, which you could then invest if you wanted to, right, in speculative investments. Clients have put enough money into life insurance when they've got enough cash accumulation in the policy that they could retire on it without having to take unnecessary risks. And that's what we are all about here at our firm at Lake Growth Financial Services. We work with clients to become their own source of financing and to build wealth in ways that are safe, sane, and predictable and help them reach their goals without taking unnecessary risks. So building whole life insurance into the center of your financial life would take bias and opinion out of your calculations, whether from me or any other financial blogger, whether life insurance or in Wall Street, it really doesn't matter, right? You make an objective calculation where you only risk in Wall Street the money you can afford to lose. And you save the money in guaranteed financial vehicles, the money you cannot afford to lose. What's the money you cannot afford to lose? This would be money that you absolutely need to have for your future. For example, retirement. You can't just lose 30 years of your life and expect things to go well, right? If you lose your retirement and, and uh, lose the ability to pay for your retirement, once you've got enough in your whole life policy, which is growing guaranteed, you know your whole life policy will grow guaranteed each year. And you'll know exactly what the number would be of your cash value, minimum guaranteed cash value, on the day you plan to tap into it. Once you have that magic number, you could decide if you could live on that income that the whole life insurance policy could provide. And then you and your financial planner could point some money toward investments to help you get a little boost and have even more ready for your retirement needs. So I really, really, honestly, at the end of this mini series, I don't want a fight between insurance and Wall Street. That's not the point of this mini series. Uh, we did want to address some of the articles that are out there, the misstatements, the myths about whole life that are out there on the internet. But Wall Street seems to think that insurance and guarantees have no place in your portfolio. If you can use whole life insurance and annuity strategies that we talk about on this podcast alongside the money you can afford to lose in Wall Street, then you've got a better chance of enjoying a real return and a comfortable retirement. But the extensive use of whole life insurance to guarantee a future savings and death benefit would definitely require 
an, a complete overhaul of how advice is given, financial planning is delivered to clients, um, blogs would need to be rewritten. I mean, that would be just overturning decades of financial planning dogma. And it honestly likely is not going to happen. What's the alternative? You can listen to this podcast. You can do your own research with baby boomers retiring and turning age 65 at 10,000 people per day for the next 20 years. It seems like many are just totally unprepared for the retirement that awaits them. And I would say that that's going to have an impact for generations to come. So for you, your choice is simple. Do you want certainty about your future or do you want to speculate and gamble with it? So I don't believe that Bank on Yourself or Wall Street are actively promoting a scam, but I do think it's important to remember to use financial products in the way that they were designed to be used. So some takeaways from this episode. One, take stock of your current portfolio. Are you risking money you cannot afford to lose? If so, take steps to reallocate your money into financial vehicles that can't lose, but are, to, but are instead only guaranteed to grow each and every year. Sit down with a competent professional. They'll calculate your magic number. Actually, we have a special calculator here at our offices, and we'd be happy to work with you on that if you'd like to reach out to us. Go to nyafinancialpodcast.com and click on Request a Meeting, and in the notes of your appointment, write the words Magic Number Calculator. Magic Number Calculator. So we'll know that you've listened to this episode and that you want to cover that in our uh, conversation together. So that's one takeaway. Number two, if you hear an advisor or blogger demonizing the entire sector of, a, of the financial industry, that's probably a, a, a key to be cautious, skeptical of what they're doing there. Remember that there is a purpose and a reason for every financial vehicle and product out there. Whether it's the stock market, whether it's whole life insurance, not all financial vehicles, however, are appropriate for you at your stage in the game. There are no bad financial products, just bad advice for how to use those products. Number three, if a financial advisor sits you down in a comfortable chair, hands you that latte and that risk tolerance questionnaire, asking you what you might do in an upcoming financial crisis, be skeptical of yourself that your own answers would point you or your advisor in the right direction. Ask instead if you could talk to them about your risk capacity, your true risk capacity. What would he or she be able to guarantee would be there for you um, no matter what happens in the market, no matter what happens on that risk questionnaire? And if they don't know what you're talking about with risk questionnaires, you might take your latte and get out of there. <laughs> so that's enough for today on that topic. And thank you for being with me on this uh, mini series. Before we wrap up our episode, I wanted to ask you a question. What's your favorite or memorable money mistake? We've all made them. I've made them, definitely. Uh, you might have made a uh, mistake or you might have seen one happen. What's your favorite one? What stands out in your mind? It doesn't have to be anything profound or huge, but I would love to know what you believe is you know, a favorite or memorable money mistake. So reach out to me and let me hear your voice. I'd love to hear from you. Go to speakpipe.com slash NYAFP. If you go there, you can leave me a voice message. And if you leave us a message before March 15th, 2020, I will send you a free copy of the book, Rescue Your Retirement by Pamela Yellen. Uh, if you don't want to remember that URL, we'll also include that link in our show notes so you can leave us a message right there. Uh, finally, I wanted to give a listener shout out to John Rickgarn. Thank you, John. You wrote us a great five-star review. 
you say awesome podcast and short and to the point. As one of us who was brought up in the Susie Ramsey cult of buy term and invest the difference, I did not get my own whole life policy until 2016. Only can imagine where I'd be if I had started it even in 2006. Holly and Mark do a phenomenal job of dispelling the myths and showing your stockbroker isn't telling you everything. Great job and keep up the great work. Well, John, thank you for a super encouraging five-star review. If others want to leave us a review, you can do that. Uh, Just go to uh, notyouraveragefinancialpodcast.com, click on leave a review, and then leave us a review. If you take a screenshot of that um, Apple podcast review, Uh, and email it to us at hello at nyafinancialpodcast.com. We'll send you that same Rescue Your Retirement book free of charge. So thank you all for joining us for another episode of Not Your Average Financial Podcast, where we help you think different about your money, your economy, and your future. This has been another episode of the Not Your Average Financial Podcast. To join a financial revolution and start thinking different about money, go to www.nyafinancialpodcast.com and click Request a Meeting. The topics presented in this podcast are for general information only and not for the purposes of providing legal, accounting, or investment advice. On such matters, please consult a professional who knows your specific situation.